All right, everyone, it is time for another exciting episode of the Tavern Voices podcast. I am one of your hosts, Kevin King, and joined with me, as always, is the other host, which is generally how the co-hosting thing works, Tyler Crawley, all the way from the beautiful, I'm sure, sunny and warm and lovely Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, how's it going, buddy? It's good. It's good. I'm actually trying to I, – I close my blind and all people you know, peeking in and getting a sneak peek of the podcast before it's completed. So I, I closed the blinds, but I think the sun is shining in. So I think your, your uh, sunny description is somewhat accurate of the, uh, the current weather report right now in Wilmington. It was cloudy earlier, but I think, I think we're going to, we're going to avoid it. It's going to be, cause it's getting hot outside. So that's usually kind of how it works, right? Sun, hot, cloudy, cool. Yeah, no, it, <laughs> it is. And I guess that maybe you dodged the, uh, the tropical storm action a little bit over the, uh, over the weekend, I saw that you were not in town. Yes, but um, uh, but we were we were both kind of on a mini vacation, yes. which was nice. I was on a, a small place. vacation, and I'm glad that it missed us because there's nothing worse than being on radio and a hurricane looks like it might be making uh, landfall because we got to be like all, you know, we're all on alert. Might have to sleep at the station, and so uh, anytime a hurricane just wants to wave hello as it goes somewhere else. I'm told, and it was cool today. It was like it was like 65 degrees this morning uh, before 8 a.m. And usually it's like 80 degrees. So uh, I actually like that. I like the little hurricane slipping by, waving, and just going somewhere else. So if they want to do that, I'm more than happy. But I don't like when they actually like come on shore and want to say hi. No, but you know what, Tyler? I did want to mention one thing before you jump into your first story, which I'm excited to talk about. Um, but if people want to say hi to us, I did want to remind them that we are on all of their favorite podcast platforms now. Uh, you can tell your Amazon Echo. You can say, hey, A-Word, play the Tavern Voices podcast. It'll pop right up. Uh, we're on the Google Play Store, Apple uh, tune in radio, uh, Spotify, everywhere that you listen to podcasts. So go by and say hi to us, like the podcast. That way that you, you get the latest episode. And that's the convenient part of podcasting is as soon as it's out there for everyone, it just comes right to your phone or tablet or, you know, desktop. If you're still into that whole thing, it, it goes wherever you want to be. I like the uh, A word. I thought that was, uh, I immediately was like, Wait, why do you think people call them, call their call their uh, echoes uh, a bad word? And I was like, oh, a word. I thought you said a hole. I was like, <laughs> kind, of, kind of threw me off there. But I, I, I got it. You're smart because if you say it, it triggers it, and that's really annoying. So you're you're very smart about that. So uh, yeah, a word. There's nothing worse than than sitting on the couch. And someone saying the A word and then all of a sudden the echo fires off and it starts talking to you. I, you know, I didn't understand what you said. I said I wasn't talking to you. And um, and that's only when the government's not listening anyway. Yes, so. I feel horrible for every every uh, woman that's named Alexa. So, oh, and uh, speaking of women. There you went. We can jump right into There you our, went. <laughs> I said it. I totally forgot. I said it. Oh, no. Is it like a drinking game? Do I have to drink because I said that? People are probably drinking to listen to you, so what's the difference? Uh, I'm going to drink every time I say the A word. If I accidentally say it, though, it doesn't count. All right, but speaking of women, we are going to talk about WNBA rookie. And Kevin, I, did you? I did not learn how to pronounce this name. Is it Aja or Aja? Aja, do you have any idea? Am I right? Close to that? Well, at, at first, I was thinking that. Can we call I her mean, for those, too? For, <laughs> we, we can call her the A word. Uh, she. Um, well, I noticed for those listening, her name is pronounced A apostrophe J A, 
which I thought if she was Hispanic could be maybe aha, uh-huh. but I don't think she is. So I don't know if it's oh, if it's AJ or AJ or in post production. Can you play the uh, aha take on me song in the background while we're talking right now? Other than the fact that no one would ever tune in again because that would be stuck in their head for the rest of the day and everyone would unsubscribe. All right, well, we're going to end the show with it then. We're going to end the show with it. All right, so WNBA rookie Aja Wilson is calling attention to the income gap between the WNBA and the NBA players. After the announcement that LeBron James signed a $154 million four-year contract with the LA Lakers, Wilson tweeted, quote, $154 million must be nice. We over here looking for a million, but Lord, let me get back in my lane. She also then tweeted, and I love Braun, not taking anything away from him. She then told Ebony Magazine that women work just as hard as men, yet there is no concrete reason that they are paid just a fraction for their work. And so, Kevin, here is my question. Shouldn't the WNBA players be happy that they make so much less? Because that's what's keeping and stopping the NBA bench warmers from claiming the female gender and coming over and dominating in their lead. If they make more money sitting on the bench in the NBA, they're going to stay put. But if they can make more money in the WNBA, all bets are off. Juana Man comes to life, I believe. So you're asking me, what a loaded question, Tyler. Where did you learn this technique? Uh, so, so you're asking me, thank God the WNBA players don't make as much as NBA players because NBA players would then just change their gender and yes. come play in the NBA. Is yes. that what you're saying? That is exactly what I'm saying. They should be glad that they get to continue to have their female league because otherwise the guys are going to come over and just – I mean like I said, a bench warmer who can dunk is going to do pretty good in the WNBA. I mean you know, it's – He's mastered the bounce pass. He did that in third grade. And so it's he's just going to come over there and dominate. So this way, the league stays women and the men have their league. You are just destroying the WNBA. But to that point, that's kind of the reason they don't make any money because no one watches or attends games or buys merchandise you're, you're, or any of the yes. above. And uh, this is probably the greatest story I ever saw because someone was – so just to give you some numbers, the WNBA – I've seen anywhere from 25 to 50 million is their revenue for the season. The NBA, meanwhile, brings in about seven and a half billion. Uh, just to give you an idea of the difference with regards to revenue. But here was the one real takeaway someone pointed out on Twitter. In 2009, the home arena for the Houston Dreams, or it was some, something Dreams, I think, were not allowed to have a home game because the arena instead of having the WNBA game, had Sesame Street Live because they could make more money. So they're like, sorry, we're not going to let you play the game this night. We booked Sesame Street Live, and they are going to have the arena that night. You can postpone the game. That was 2009. Uh, they did that. And, I, I mean, first of all, I'm surprised the WNBA has been around that long. That actually kind of surprised me. But when you're losing to Sesame Street Live, I think comparing yourself to the NBA – might be a little aspirational. Just going to throw that out there. I mean, clearly that was Obama's fault, right? <laughs> Pretty close. Because that was before Romney tried to kill Big Bird. Oh, that's true. So. That's true. They were they were looking for donors at that time. If they hadn't been so all about money, then maybe they would have they would have been okay with helping the WNBA. Well, out. maybe. Maybe they just need to – what would be the opposite of privatize? Publicize? Publicize the WNBA and just make it a taxpayer-run organization like PBS and then it might get off to a better start 
than the WNBA is right now because I mean, the whole profit thing apparently isn't really working in their favor. I mean, it's pretty much already subsidized by the NBA as is. <laughs> so it's like I don't know what more they could be doing uh, to help them out. But I think I think they're they are unaware of how good it is that they don't get paid that much because I think it keeps the league uh, from being overrun with with uh, gender switchers. Well, I mean, I wanted to circle back to that point, so I'm, I'm glad you brought that back up. And my question is, it, doesn't this really mean that it's time to abolish the WNBA and just have a unisex NBA and let the best of the best compete it out? And then if you're a, a female and you're as good as LeBron James and you're in the NBA, you'll make $154 million, right? Yeah. Isn't that the equalizer? Why, why is there a separate league? That's a great point as well. I mean, let's all be for equality. Uh, I, have, I did see someone actually also point out that they should do it like tennis where, you know, so golf, you have the LPGA and the PGA and they play different events and they're completely separate. But then they pointed out that tennis, you know, the women's and men's events all happen in the same place at the same time. And so someone said, well, why don't they have, and I was thinking, well, why don't you have like the warm up game be the WNBA and then you could have the NBA game. And so that way the WNBA could, e- could even, you know, more so piggyback on the NBA and they could be, like I said, the warm-up game, like the exhibition game. Like when you go to a, you know, or you go to a concert, they're the warm-up band that everyone, you know, you kind of get to your seats and it's in the background and, oh, that's not bad. That's kind of cool. But I think that would actually help them out. I think it would, it would suck more money off of the NBA's money, uh, but uh, it would definitely fill the seats more so than now where apparently no one is, is going to the games. But I think the WNBA has it much better than they realize. Yeah, well, here's my final thought on it, and I'll let you have your final thought. But I think what should happen is that ESPN should put on a one-on-one match, LeBron versus Ajay, AJ, Aha, Wilson, and and televise it and do this big event, bring attention to the WNBA. I mean, if she puts up a fight, she can ball against LeBron, who is who many people think is the greatest of all time. That can't do anything but help boost uh, the WNBA. I like it. Battle of the Sexes Part 2. Except with basketball, not tennis. It would actually be someone, it would be two people in their prime. Because like, you know, the Billie Jean King match was, how old was that guy? <laughs> he was like He was like 60 years old with a walker. And he was taking on Billie Jean King in her prime. And they're like, ha-ha, women are the same as men. It's like, yeah, okay. And- he was no John McEnroe. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, I, w- I would be all for an exhibition mask, uh, or mat- match. And um, I don't want to know what an exhibition mask is. Uh, an exhibition max- <laughs> match. I'm all for it. I heard Tiger and Phil are going to be doing one. So let's let LeBron and Wilson, Aja Wilson, knock theirs out. I'd be I'd be all on board. And, um, I, you know, I I don't think it'll happen, but I really wish it would, because I think it would be some great television. I'm all for it. And yeah. And speaking of great television, tonight is going to be a major event if you follow the political world, um, because President Trump is slated to announce his pick to replace Justice Kennedy on the Supreme Court. So everybody is putting their speculations in today and no one really knows who he's going to choose, or at least I have no idea. We could probably throw out a bunch of guesses and 
how Trump operates. He is keeping it close to the chest. But what I have found fascinating about this whole narrative that has happened uh, over the last several weeks since Kennedy announced his retirement is that all the left seems to be worried about is the balance on the court and how Trump might make this court with uh, the changing landscape into an activist court. Now, heaven forbid that there would be a court decision made based on the Constitution, not political motives. That would be, I guess, a really, really radical court if they stuck to originalist principles. So, Tyler, my question is this. Does the left only champion the Supreme Court when it's promoting their agenda? Well, they only – yeah, they only think the, the Supreme Court should be superior when it looks like it's going to benefit them. Uh, the same thing with precedent. You know, all of a sudden they, you know, it, it's precedent is the most important thing on the court. Even though for what ten years now they've been running against repealing DC versus Heller, uh, Citizens United, uh, pretty much any case they disagreed with, they've been all about. The Democrats have been running on we have to repeal these cases because they're going to, you know, they're going to destroy this nation. I had, what was it? One person the other day was trying to argue that gerrymandering had something to do with Citizens United. <laughs> I had no idea, but okay. And so those are totally okay if we repeal those. But, you know, if we repeal Roe versus Wade, that's – you had – what was it? Was it uh, Souter? David Souter wrote an op-ed for the New York Times, what, three months ago talking about repealing the Second Amendment? The Second Amendment! The Second Amendment! Yes. That is up for debate. But something that's been here since 1976, I think, in Roe versus Wade, that is just that is that's beyond reproach. Can't touch it. Don't even think about repealing that. That is the most important ruling ever. But the Second Amendment, totally fair game. The Democrats continue to argue about the First Amendment and they're just they're all over the place because they don't have, you know, the, the Constitution's a living, breathing document until it's not. And then it is again. So, yeah, no, they, they have they have no consistency on this issue. And it's, it's just insane to watch some of their arguments. One of the big ones is they're going to, they're going to start, they want to pack the court. <laughs> but what's funny is they're, is they're basically showing us their hand. They're like, what are we at? You guys, nice try. When we get in office, we're going to pack the court. And it's like, Oh, Hey, thanks for the idea. Good idea. We're going to pack the court ahead of you. So if we put a hundred justices on the court, you guys can try and put a hundred on, but good luck. I mean, just, it, they're all over the place. They are absolutely losing their mind under President Trump. And I feel for him, but it's 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 very bizarre. Well, I'm glad. I, I love that you fell right into what I was going for there. You said all the talking points. In fact, I don't have to say anything else. That, that was exactly what I was getting at because they really do carry the Constitution around like a weekend at Bernie's. You know, yeah. it's alive. No, he's not. He's, you know, they prop, prop the Constitution up in the chair when it's convenient for us. And the idea that Overturning Roe versus Wade would be this catastrophic event is to say that the Supreme Court has never made bad decisions. And we could talk for the next probably two days on awful Supreme Court decisions, whether it be segregation, you know, separate but equal uh, internment of, of Japanese American citizens. The Supreme Court is not infallible. And when they are pushing their own agenda, that's when it is worse. They should be very much bound to their role. And they already have an extreme amount of power. The fact that nine people can completely overturn the the will of millions of citizens. When you take, um, you know, 
the gay marriage, for example, and when you had states passing amendments, um, when you had, uh, what was it, Proposition 8 in California, I mean, you've got millions of people voting for something and the Supreme Court just goes, nope, you can't do that. <laughs> It's, it's so much power. And like you said, it's, it, they can be, they can think the Supreme court is the worst body ever when it's citizens United and the best ever when it's Roe v. Wade or gay marriage. And then the wedding cake, they're kind of like, Oh no, the Supreme court screwed up. Um, but they think that because the court is in their favor 80% of the time that getting rid of Kennedy and swinging that magical balance that they think is balanced when it's really in their favor is somehow going to unbalance it. Well, yeah, and that's, that's a very important point is that there is no such thing as balance. Uh, you know, I talking about partisan gerrymandering. Uh, that's another issue where Democrats are like, whoa, what we need to do is create a, a nonpartisan or, or, a, or, a, a two, or a, I guess, bipartisan commission to look at it. It's like, well, no, the only reason you want that is because we have the power. So if we go back to actual fairness – Technically, you're benefiting from that because right now we have the power. And it's the same thing with the Supreme Court. Now, all of a sudden, it's like we need to pick someone who's fair and even-minded. It's like you're telling me that if Ginsburg had retired under Obama, they would have been calling for a level-headed middle of the – no way. They'd be calling for a liberal. And people keep forgetting Kennedy was appointed by Reagan. He is a Republican appointee. This is not changing the balance of the court and everyone just seems very confused by this. But no, I mean, it's it's your I, I, I like your analogy of the weekend at Bernie. It's alive. It's not. It's we're going to change it. No, we shouldn't. I always love the fact that people don't realize that Citizens United only deals. And I always bring this up. Citizens United only deals with corporations and unions. The idea that a rich individual can spend an unlimited amount of money on political campaigns was actually a 76 decision, I think, or 73 Buckley versus Vallejo, that not one Democrat ever talks about repealing. (laughs) And they they act like, oh, all all these problems have been caused when most of it was already legal. People forget the Swift Boat veterans that took down Kerry was – it happened in 2004 way before Citizens United. So uh, there's just – it's – there's a lot of ignorance and that's both on the right and the left. But there's no consistency. At least people on the right are consistent. And that's why some people have started asking the question. I'll ask you this question. Some have said, should we, as people who believe the Supreme Court is too powerful, as most Republicans do, use this as an opportunity to maybe, because the Democrats would be all for it, pulling back on the powers of the court? Or, like always, would we do that and, like, Lucy with the football, they pull the football away um, the minute they got power, and they give all the power back to the court once again? And that's, that's one of the other questions that's out there. Was there a question in there? Yeah, should we should we go about doing that? <laughs> should we? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I I have no. I mean, listen, I I think we see that right now in North Carolina. You had pretty much unfettered Democrat control of the legislature, the governor, uh, the education system, which we will get to more later. Um, and and so there has been this sort of riding, of course, pun intended, where. There has been a, a drastic change in the way a lot of things are done, the tax policies, uh, reforming the way we fund certain uh, entitlement programs and, uh, and other liabilities. And But then when do you get at that point where you go from let's even things out and put it in a quote, what I would perceive as fair, which is get government out of everything um, versus now we're in power and we want things to, to overcorrect and go drastically another direction. And I think that's um, – 
you know, I think that's ultimately the, the the problem with true balance is is when do you find a balance? And I think that that's why originally our government was set up with such a, a small amount of parameters. Here's three things the federal government should be in charge of. Here are three different branches to balance it out so no one person has pow- has too much power and then let the people in the states just do everything else. And and now there's just there, there's so much to it. I, I don't know what you do. I mean, I, I really at this point would be surprised if they even do overturn Roe v. Wade. I think, you know, they might kick something back to the states. I mean, I, I don't even know what you what you do we, at that point, you know, because it's always it's got to be based on a case. Well, but yeah, but I mean, they could. But the thing is, even if you overturn Roe v. Wade, it goes to the states. You're telling me California's going to ban abortion? All all overturning Roe v. Wade would do. We would cause would exacerbate the already massive divide that exists in this country between the coasts, the non-coasts, the cities, the non-cities. The, I mean, we're already seeing this. I mean, the cities are overwhelmingly liberal. All that would do is just make it even worse because anyone that wanted an abortion would just go to like the West Coast uh, or you know New York. I mean, those places aren't banning abortion. So yeah, we ban it in North Carolina. Okay, <laughs> I mean, it probably wouldn't even ban it completely. We would just put more stringent regulations, but it wouldn't be a complete ban. But if you want one, you know, in the eight month of your pregnancy, you can probably still go to California. And so even if we overturned it, it, it wouldn't completely eliminate it. There would st- there'd still be a lot of states out there where a lot of people live who would have no problems getting an abortion. I mean, it, 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 it would, it would inconvenience people in red states, but other than that, there'd be no change if you were in a blue state, not at all. Yeah, it's it's almost like the system would work as intended. Yeah. But, <laughs> but speaking of, I will let you. You know what? You you've got the better segue. <laughs> Knock it out. I was going to say, speaking of working as intended, uh, both the United States and China enacted thirty four billion dollars in tariffs on Fridays uh, or on Friday, and WREL reported that the North Carolina farmers are continuing to get caught in this trade war crossfire. Why? Andy Curlis, chief executive of the North Carolina Port Council, said that Mexico and China combined to purchase anywhere from 12 to 15 percent of the state's pork products. Tobacco, North Carolina Farm Bureau President Larry Wooten noted that China has been the largest market for North Carolina's tobacco in recent years and pointed out that 75 percent of that tobacco has got to be exported. And the Chinese have said they're not purchasing it until we get all of this settled. In total, State Agriculture Commissioner Steve Troxler said agriculture exports to China, Mexico, and Canada are about $1.1 billion. And so, Kevin, are North Carolina farmers tired of winning? <laughs> are they tired of winning? Um, of winning? Are they tired of winning? It's so who, much. Who is tired of winning? There is so much winning going. You know, we've been talking about this. We've been podcasting for a year or something. And the whole time we've been talking about Trump and what is he doing and what's his master plan? Is he really secretly free market and he's playing games? Is he really a closet Democrat who I mean, I don't think anyone knows who he is. Um, I, I keep hoping that this is all some big game that he thinks he's going to win, but I don't understand how you're going to go into office to fix the trade deficit that you campaigned on by basically screwing up the trade deficit and hurting, you know, farmers. I mean, like you said, I mean, the article, uh, WRL talks about soy and pork and tobacco, major staples of the North Carolina economy. 
and you're going to put taxes on them so that other countries, and I would venture to say that China buys a lot of stuff. They've got a yeah. lot of people over there. Um, that that's not going to somehow impact us when you can buy these products from other countries, right? You're not talking about specialized merchandise. I mean, there's only so many places you can buy a an iPhone or a uh, you know or a Japanese made TV, right? You, you it's it, it's crops, right? Is that is that a specialty that we can hang on to? Well, if, if it was Venus flytraps, then we would have a corner on the market and we, we really put the screws to them. But yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, and, and that's actually one of the problems with the balance of trade is that you have – usually what ends up happening is if you ramp up uh, demand from one country or another, it just leads to sort of, OK, well, we're going to buy here. OK, well, now we're going to buy there. It just, it, it just shifts everything around. Nothing completely changes and all tariffs do. Uh, is just uh, is is our as our imports drop, which is what Trump wants. Our exports drop too. That's why you know China's going tit for tat. Now, some have said that Trump can win this, and there is a pretty good argument due to the fact that we import. I think 0.7 percent of our GDP is imports from China, but four percent of their exports are what we're importing. So there, we import far more than we export to China. So if we do a tit for tat, eventually China runs out of stuff. The only problem is can Trump promise everyone and keep everyone on his side? I mean, he seems to be doing a pretty good job of it now. Even the farmers that are losing their jobs. I mean, there's articles about how these farmers are like, yeah, this is hurting us. And we have to let some people go. But we understand what Trump's doing and we're going to stick with them. China doesn't have a political system. I mean, Xi Jinping's president for life. Um, and he, half the country's already pretty much in absolute poverty. So he can kind of make them suffer for whatever reason. Trump has elections he has to deal with. We got November coming up. We got, we got 2020. And that's the big problem for Trump. Can he hold on to not only his base, but independents and others, especially in that Rust Belt? If they're not seeing any benefit and all they're seeing is pain, uh, he might have to reverse course because, like I said, unlike China – Unlike, you know, Xi Jinping, he doesn't have to worry about elections or he doesn't have to worry about elections. And so that's that. That's the only thing, because I think Trump could win it because we do have a way. Our economy is thriving. We we import more. But can Trump hold on while we go through this transition? That's that's going to be the big question. Well, let me ask you a little bit of a wild card question and get, you know, maybe a 30 second response. But what um, since I know you pay a lot more attention to trade, you talk a lot more about tariffs and trade deficit and you do a lot of reading and research on this far more than I do. Um, how is something like this? And I say this is a wild card because I'm trying to trying to look at the, the Rubik's Cube from a different side. How does something like this affect domestic consumption? Because my thought is, is that if you have farmers locally who are selling something overseas, you know, they're getting one exchange price for this. There's a lot of shipping. There's a lot of other costs involved versus what happens because I know there's a lot of products where we, you know, I've been in the supermarket and you see sugar cookies in the bakery that are imported from China, right? Somehow it's cheaper to make sugar cookies in China and ship them here and put them in your local grocery store than it is for their bakery to make it. I, I don't understand. So I know a lot of times things are just moved back and forth. Like we may sell our, our pigs to China and then China turns around and sells something to another country. And then we buy pigs from another country to eat barbecue. 
right? I mean, Smithfield yeah. is owned by a Chinese company. So, yeah. so what is how, how does that affect us? If, if let's say we just all, you know, is that going to drive down the cost of us to actually eat food here? So that will that help the consumer index or anything like that? Well, the problem is, is that as many people have pointed out, the complexity of the global supply chain makes it very difficult for, to figure that out. And that's why some people have said that some of the projections on on the uh, the negative impact on GDP is actually a low ball estimate because they're not counting other factors into it because of how complex. I mean, the other day I was talking about Volvo. Volvo is headquartered in Sweden, owned by a Chinese company, made in South Carolina. Like, good luck figuring out if Volvo is a domestic car or not. It's things like that that make it very difficult. The the the, the reason the agriculture imports uh, are interesting is that first of all, when it comes to hogs. Uh, you're right. They're owned by China. We export. But the thing we export to them is a lot of the garbage that we don't want, like the snouts and the hooves and things like that, uh, that aren't worth anything really here. They actually buy those things. Uh, and then tobacco, the smoking rate in the United States is dropping off. I mean, it's dropped off dramatically. And yet other nations like China and a lot of Asian countries, smoking is still very popular. And so a lot of the tobacco uh, farmers are relying on those foreign markets because the, the U.S. markets are drying up all the taxes and the media and everything else. So a lot of it is they're buying the stuff that we don't have any use for. And that's sort of the way the global market works is that we sell you something we don't have a lot of use for. You sell us something you don't have a lot of use for. And it's this mutually beneficial relationship. And like I said, China does a lot of stuff you know, with the intellectual property and the subsidizing other products. But – in this case, they're targeting these products on purpose because they know it's going to hurt because we will not find probably another buyer for a lot of these goods. And so, yeah, but it's also just the complexity of the global supply chain that makes things so difficult to figure out. It, it's, it's very complex, Tyler. It, it really is. <laughs> and I, I have a thousand more questions. We might just have to do a, a trade episode at some point. <laughs> Because I'm, I'm just thinking all the things I want to ask, but we're running out of time. And I did want to get to one final uh, recent story here uh, locally in North Carolina, which is kind of an update on an ongoing battle. I noticed a headline in the News and Observer last week, which asked the question, who's really in charge of North Carolina's public schools? The opening paragraph went on to say that the fight over who is running the schools remains unsettled. And what I find confusing and why I bring this up, Tyler is that this follows uh, directly on the heels of a recent North Carolina Supreme Court ruling that upheld the decision of a three-judge panel last year saying that the superintendent is, the this is the short version, the superintendent is in charge. Then the article goes on to say how the State Board of Education Chairman Bill Coby said he's going to continue to pass rules and regulations dictating what the superintendent does. So I get the strange feeling, Tyler, that despite all of the protest over education, the teachers march and, and all the discussion that's been going on the last couple of months, that there might actually be a larger fight over power and money in public education than uh, anyone really likes to talk about. Oh, absolutely. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, absolutely. I mean, you, you look at this fight, and first of all, the thing is, is that no one pays attention to this. <laughs> like, no, it's know, such inside baseball. Oh, it's so inside baseball. I mean, I think people, most people would be surprised to know that we have a state board of education. I think that would probably surprise most people. And, you know, the superintendent race and this battle back and forth, it, it, it really is, first of all, sort of fascinating because I think most people would say, well, I think the person that we elect to run the schools should be the one running the schools. I mean, I don't think there, 
most people would have a big question about that versus you know the, the those that are appointed on the board. And listen, I like Bill Kobe. I've had him on the show. Um, I like Mark Johnson. I've had him on my show. And in my opinion, I think the school board serves a, 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 an important function because let's face it, you, you never want to just have one guy in control of something, even if it is an elected position. You, it like to have checks and balances. But the reality is, is that the agenda and other things should be set by the superintendent. Uh, that's who we elect. They're running. Uh, otherwise, it's hard to figure out what exactly uh, the superintendent's purpose is. I mean, if they're not setting the, why are we even electing this person? I mean, it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. So it, it, I think that, that the, the, the court was right to argue that the, the superintendent should have certain powers. But I also like that there's some oversight as well from the board but I do think that at the end of the day, it should be sort of the superintendent that's, that's setting the agenda and making these decisions because, hey, listen, I mean, elections have consequences. Yeah, no, they, they really do. And and you brought up, I mean, Bill Kobe is a, a under this standing, a pretty Republican guy. I don't know how conservative or where on the spectrum. Um, but but this isn't really a Democrat-Republican fight at the moment, which is no. interesting. Um, you have – I was actually lucky enough to go sit in the the Supreme Court uh, arguments on this case and the other case that the State Board of Education just lost uh, regarding the Rules Review Commission, which is super inside baseball on uh, whether whether or not the Rules Review Commission can actually uh, review the rules that are um, that are instituted by the um, by by DPI and, and the State Board of Education. And this power struggle is just phenomenal, yet they didn't make strong arguments. I mean, if you read the opinions of both of these cases, you, you have to realize the North Carolina Supreme Court is biased towards Democrats. Yeah. It is not it, it is not anything where it's a 5-4, um, you know, r- regular decision like the Supreme Court is. Um, you, you have a pretty heavily Democrat court and you had um, – uh, the chief justice uh, recused himself from, I don't know if it was this case or the, the rules case, um, but long story short, um, you, you, you brought up the, the perfect point is, is what is the point of the superintendent if he has not delegated the, this authority through the constitution? And then ultimately at the end of the day, it's who is in charge of the school system? I think that's the broader question. And when you hear the arguments in these cases, you have the, the state board of education basically saying we are a fourth branch. We are beholden to no one. And that's what really concerns me is that even the Supreme Court said, well, we'll know that the General Assembly is able to to legislate and, and, and you must follow it. And in their first in the, the arguments with the three judge panel, they essentially said we're autonomous. We, we're not beholden to what legislators do. And that is really the ultimate check and balance because they're elected every two years in the in the House and Senate. So people can can drastically change what's going on with the school system with frequent elections, whereas when you're talking about a, a, a board of education with appointees that are all political friends and cronies and and completely unaccountable to the people who ha- are trying to have their children educated, that's that's a major issue for me. And and the fact that no one talks about that is 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 a little bit of a concern. Yeah, I, and this is a, this is a, this weird <laughs> uh, stance that for some reason uh, more moderate. I would say leaning left liberals like to take. You can look at the Mueller probe on the national level and people like to say the special counsel is sort of this fourth branch, right? Because the president can't fire him, but he has created 
by the DOJ who is gets their power. The DOJ gets their power from the president. And they're like, no, the president can't fire him. He, he, it's an independent branch. And it's like, why do you think that's a good thing? Why do you think creating – and that's why some people have argued the special counsel uh, law that no longer exists, but the one that was in it was essentially unconstitutional because you cannot have a branch that exists outside of the oversight of any of the branches of government. And for some reason, people just seem to think that's a good thing. Like, oh, the Mueller probe is outside the branch. That, that, that means it will be fair and unbalanced and out of the way of politics or the state board of elections. Like, no, that's the worst. I mean, haven't you guys ever read a Spider-Man comic book? <laughs> or not a Spider-Man comic book. No, what's the uh, – with great power. Not, not that, that is the Spider-Man one. It's the, yeah, that's Spider-Man. Power, yeah, power absolutely. corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. It, it, that was actually – That, was that, that is not philo- Spider-Man. That was not Spider-Man. Was that a Greek philosopher or someone? <laughs> one uh, of those yeah, old guys. It was Spider-Ocrates. Is that – I mean there's a reason that phrase exists. You never give somebody absolute power. And why, for some reason, they think that, you know, as I guess it was Alexander Hamilton that said, you know, if angels were men, we wouldn't need government. I mean, there's a reason that we have check and balance is because we're supposed to be checking each other because when no one is checked, they do horrible, horrible things. And so letting these bodies of government exist supposedly free of political restraint is not a good thing. I, I get the frustration with politics, but that's not the answer is that you answer to no one is not the answer. That is the worst thing that we could do. And people always say, oh, Trump's going to lead us to you know, tyranny or he's going to lead us down the, you know, the path of becoming a uh, dictator. No, a dictator is someone that answers to no one. So if you want that to happen, then keep allowing people in government to answer to no one. That's how you get a dictatorship. Yeah, now we're now we're into the deep state, man. That's Are you right. ready? We're, we're about ready to kick this podcast into overdrive. <laughs> oh, they're probably going to cut us off if we keep talking about the deep state. What? What? I can't hear you. You're breaking up, Tyler. <laughs> I've got cue clearance. 